All right, well, I grew up uh, in the church. Uh, I grew up in a family that uh, was very involved in church, and the church I went to growing up, like, we didn't just have Sunday morning. It was, like, Sunday night, Wednesday night, so, like, every day I felt like I was in church. That was a big part of my life. But the thing that was very different for me, looking back, is the church culture that I was in was very, very different than the culture we have at Redemption Chapel. And one of the things that I know, or I look back and I can see the big difference is, uh, is that they would often use fear to motivate, motivate people to accept Christ. And so a lot of the churches I was a part of as a kid, they would share the gospel and it would be based a lot on fear. Like, you don't want to die and go to hell, so you need Jesus. And so they would just scare you until you eventually came to faith, all right? And there's a couple of things that they did that kind of uh, fed into this fear-based approach. And if you grew up in one of these churches, you might recognize some of this stuff. The first one was a thing called Left Behind. All right, so these were books that turned into movies. For some reason, the churches I were in were obsessed with rapture movies, all right? And so we would watch these movies, and as a middle school kid, you're watching these movies, you know, like planes are flying, people go to heaven, planes crash, clothes are folded right there, and you're like, what's the heck's going on? And so at the end, you would be freaked out because why? You don't want to be left behind. You were afraid. So we'd watch those. Uh, and then if that wasn't enough, uh, another thing that the churches I was a part of were very big on were these things called judgment houses. And so basically it's a Christian haunted house because a good Christian can't go to a real haunted house. So you have to have a Christian version, all right? Yeah. And so we would have these like Christian haunted houses and the whole idea would be kind of you walk through this house and there would be all these different scenes and it would be like watching a story of someone, you know, not living for Jesus and they would die and then they would go stand before God one day and they'd be cast into hell because they didn't respond to the gospel when they were alive. And at the end of this judgment house, if it, you know, if you're already terrified, you walked into this tent and they would share the gospel with you. And what would you do? You would accept Christ, even if you've done it 40 times before, because you just witnessed a terrifying uh, scene of events, and you didn't want to be in that situation. And then the other thing, and this was probably the one that freaked me out the most growing up, is there was a play, a drama, that was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. It's as terrifying as it sounds. Uh, so it's basically like watching the judgment house, but being acted out on a stage in front of you. And so you'd watch this drama of someone dying and they weren't a Christian and they would stand before God and they would be cast into the flames of hell and a couple of people would go to heaven and there would be like a lot of smoke machines. So you think we have haze here? Like it was like smoke machines to the max because you have to represent hell with a lot of smoke. And so it was right in your face. And the whole idea at the end, like the judgment house, they would give you this invitation and you would respond to Christ. Now, now, before we laugh too much, I want to be careful because I, I don't want to poke too much fun because I do believe a lot of those churches that I grew up in at least had the right heart, right? I don't think their method was the most effective, but they at least were trying. And for a lot of them, it's just what they've always done. But what it did is it played into fear. And a lot of times people were responding to Jesus out of fear, not because they were moved by God's grace and Jesus's work on the cross. They were moved more by not wanting to go to hell. So think about that context, that church culture, and insert a 12-year-old kid who has a bent towards anxiety and worry and things like that. And that was me. And I was in those churches as an elementary kid, and I would be prone to anxiety and worry. And I was hearing these messages and seeing these things, and it would freak me out. And much of my growing up in my years, I was more afraid of, man, I don't want to go to hell 
than I was saying, you know what, God is good, Jesus is good, look what he's done for me. And so one of the things that's interesting is because of that, that I would go to places in Scripture, passages in the Bible, and I would read verses that should have moved me to worship. Verses and passages that should have made me go like, oh my gosh, look how good God is. Look at what Christ has done for me. Look at what he saved me from. But instead, I would go to those passages and I would be fearful of what, of not meeting Jesus or not ever knowing him. Now, ironically, one of those passages that used to freak me out is what we're going to look at this morning. All right, so we're going to do a little, this will be therapy for me. For you, you can just listen in. But we're going to read one of those passages. And here's my goal for you. My goal for you is I don't want you to experience what I experienced. I don't want you to experience fear this morning. What I want you to experience is to see the gospel and see the beauty of the gospel and to see the amazing work of Jesus and what he has done and what he could do in your life. That's what I want to move you towards. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. And we're going to pick it up where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. And that's basically someone who is verbally abusive. Nor swindlers, and that's someone who defrauds someone, a, a, a cheat, will inherit the kingdom of God. So just let that sink in for a minute. Let that sink in. When you read that verse or that, those two verses, it's easy to see how those passages, that passage can freak you out. It's easy to see how you can read that and go, ooh, that seems a little terrifying, doesn't it? And in a sense, it should. Like there is a sense you should read that passage and you should go, oh, that kind of freaks me out. But at the same time, it shouldn't. It should actually comfort you. It should do both. And you might be thinking, how does it do both? Well, it depends on who you are. It depends on what your standing is with God, all right? And so now that you're like, I don't understand how it can be both, let me explain. Because when you understand what Paul is saying, I think you will get it. See, what you need to understand here is Paul is not talking about isolated acts of sin. Instead, when he is talking about these things in this passage, he is referring to patterns and habits of sin. He's not talking about occasional acts of sin. He is talking about living a lifestyle of sin. So notice when Paul says in this, or when Paul writes this passage, he's not saying those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say those who commit these types of sins. What he says is those whose lives are characterized by these types of sins. He gives labels to people who would live a life that is characterized by these types of sinful lifestyles. And the point that Paul is trying to make is that those who live a sinful lifestyle cannot inherit and will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, if you live a life of sin, meaning there is patterns of sin, there's habits of sin, there's just this ongoing sinful lifestyle, and there's no repentance, there's no confession, there's no conviction over that sin. If that is what you're living, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, do not be deceived. It doesn't matter if you have professed faith. It doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer when you were younger, or you have some spiritual experience growing up. He says, if you, have, if you are living a lifestyle of sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, no matter what you might have experienced in the past. One commentator writing about this passage sums it up like this. He says, persistent rebellion 
increasingly calls into question any prior profession of faith. So you might have a profession of faith, meaning you might have claimed that at some point in your life you've prayed a prayer, you've went to Jesus. But if your life is still this increasing rebellion against God where there's no confession of sin, there's no repentance of sin, there's no conviction of the Spirit, he would say, and I think rightfully so, what Paul is saying here is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You've really never experienced the gospel. Let me give you an illustration to help you see that. There's, uh, there's a guy, some of you probably read his books. His name is J.D. Greer. He's a pastor and author. And some of our guys in men's study, we've done a couple of his Bible studies, so we're familiar with him. But he writes in one of his books at the beginning about meeting this guy on the basketball court. And he meets this guy on the basketball court, and he says as they're shooting hoops, and they're hanging out, and they're talking, uh, J.D. says this guy just starts talking about just his life. And he says his mouth is just terrible. He's cussing like a sailor, and he starts bragging about all his kind of sinful activities. He starts bragging about all the women he's sleeping with, and he just goes on and on and on. And J.D., just like any of us, would assume, man, this guy must not be a Christian. He must not truly know Jesus because his life does not show it. And so J.D. starts witnessing to him. He starts sharing the gospel with this guy and says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus and what he can do. And it's in the middle of him sharing the gospel, the guy stops him and says, hey, are you trying to witness to me right now? And J.D.'s like, yeah, yeah. He goes, you don't have to. He's like, when I was 13, I went to youth camp. I prayed this prayer. I had this experience. I gave my life to Jesus. And I know I'm not living the way I should. I know the things I'm doing. God clearly says no. But here's the thing. I prayed a prayer. I'm not going to hell. I'm good. You don't need to worry. And that guy truly believed that his eternity was set in heaven. He truly believed he was right with God because he made some profession in the past. But his life screamed the opposite. His life did not back up his claim that he believes in Jesus. And that's who Paul is talking about in this passage. He is talking about people who may think they're right with God, but their life, the way they live, shows the opposite. Now, maybe that's you. I know in a church our size, when we have people here on a Sunday, not everyone in this room truly has experienced a life change and truly haven't experienced the gospel. And there are many of you, maybe you have some experience in your past. Maybe you went to youth camp and prayed, and ex- prayed a prayer, right? Like I was one of those kids. I remember going to youth camp every summer and like every summer coming to faith once again, right? Like I remember that. And I remember having these experiences and I remember my friends having those experiences, but I remember watching my friends accept Christ, but then I would never see a change and they would continue in their sinful lifestyles. And maybe that's you. Right? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, yeah, I kind of prayed a prayer, I had this experience, but man, if I look at my life, I see a lifestyle of sin. I don't see repentance, I don't see confession, I don't see conviction, I just see this pattern of rebellion against God. And if that's you, here's what you need to do this morning. And you can just tune out the rest of everything else. So this is what you need to do. You need to place your faith in Jesus and embrace a life-changing relationship with him. If you are living a lifestyle of sin, you need to understand this passage should freak you out. It should scare you because it says, and it's plain from the Bible, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you are living that lifestyle of sin and you haven't repented and there's no change, you need this morning to place your faith in Jesus and lean into that relationship that he wants to give you. And when you do, he's going to change you. He's going to give you new habits. There's going to be new patterns. There's going to be a new trajectory to your life because of the change that he is bringing. But what about Christians? What about those of us who we have embraced the gospel? We have uh, experienced this life-changing relationship with God. How do we read a verse like this? Should it freak us out? Should it cause us fear? 
and I don't think it should. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why. There's a couple of things you need to remember when you read this passage as a believer. First, remember what Paul is talking about. He is referring to not isolated or occasional acts of sin. He is referring to a lifestyle of sin. So as Christians, we will sin, all right? Just because you place your faith in Jesus, just because you have a relationship with him, doesn't mean sin goes away. You will still sin. However, as a Christian, as you continue to grow in your relationship with God, that sin no longer becomes a lifestyle for you. Your life is no longer characterized by that sin, right? There's still sin, and you're going to keep battling that until you get to heaven, but you will see change, and you will see a lifestyle that's no longer characterized by sin, but characterized by new habits and new patterns and things that honor God. And so you got to remember what Paul's talking about here. Secondly, remember this. As Christians, we will still sin, as I just said, but we don't have to question our identity in Christ. We don't have to question who we are in Christ when we sin. And so as Christians, when you sin, when you screw up, you don't have to panic and say, ooh, am I a child of God? Am I, am I a Christian? Am I good? Your identity, who you are in Christ, is set no matter if you sin. So at the beginning of this verse, Paul says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a fact. But here's the cool thing. As a Christian, the moment you place your faith in Jesus, one of the things that happened is your unrighteousness was taken from you. That unrighteousness that, that you have was taken from you. And in exchange, you got the righteousness of Jesus gifted to you. And so instead of you being an unrighteous person, now as a Christian, you are actually righteous, and that's because Christ has given you his righteousness. Look at 2 Corinthians, and we'll get to this when we go through 2 Corinthians, but look at what Paul says in chapter 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an exchange. Your righteousness gets taken, unrighteousness gets taken from you, and Jesus gifts you his righteousness. And so as a believer, you can look back at that other passage and say, you know what? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, but here's the good news. Here's the beautiful thing, is I am not an unrighteous person because Christ has given me his righteousness, and I will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is all thanks to the Lord and what he has done for you and for me. Now, here's the other thing as Christians you got to remember is we still take our sin seriously. I don't want you to hear, yeah, you still sin, you have righteousness in Jesus, you're good, so that just means sin isn't a big deal. Well, that's not the case. As believers, one of the things that happens when God changes our lives is we start to hate our sin. We start to grieve our sin. We start to feel conviction. And so when we sin as believers, you better believe we don't just sweep it under the rug, we deal with it. And we hate it, and we fight it, and we repent of it. A few weeks ago, Pastor Rick said in his sermon that we should be repenting people, right? As Christians, we don't just repent when we come to faith. We continue to repent over and over. It's a lifestyle. And that's what Paul wants you to know as a believer. You continue to repent of your sin. You are no longer like those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will still sin, yes, but you repent of that sin. But you got to remember this. As a believer, something has happened to you to change you from that. There's been a change. Something has changed you from that lifestyle to a new lifestyle. And you have to remember it's all because of what God has done. And I want to show you that in the next verse. This is verse 11. Paul continues. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So I said earlier, I don't want this passage to cause you fear. I want this passage to actually move you to a place of being in awe of Jesus and being floored by the gospel. And I think that's what Paul's goal here is in verse 11. His goal is not to freak Christians out. His goal is to say, hey, that's who you used to be, but thanks be to God, look at who you are now and look at what God has done to get you there. It's all of what he has done. Notice Paul says, and such were some of you. He talks to these Corinthian Christians and says, you know what, all those lifestyles I just mentioned, all those people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, you used to be like that. That was who you were. But he says, you are no longer like that. And notice who made them like that. It wasn't themselves. It wasn't anything they've done. It's all because of what God has done. And you might have caught it. He uses three important kind of theological ideas in that verse. He says, first, they were washed meaning that at the moment of their conversion, their, their, their sin, the guilt, the stain of sin has been washed from them. Through the blood of Christ, all their sin, past, present, and future, has been wiped away. They stand before God clean. He says they were sanctified, and that just means they were set apart. They were set apart to God, and they were set apart for God. And then lastly, it's a beautiful word, they were justified. And that means declared righteous. That goes back to what I talked about a minute ago. Our unrighteousness was taken from us. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And because of that, the Bible declares us as righteous before God. We are justified. Now notice in that verse, in verse 11, there is no mention of what the Corinthians have done. There's no mention of, man, they started reading the Bible. They went to church. They started trying to be better people. None of that. It is a zero mention of anything they have done. And the point Paul is making is that is because they didn't do anything. God did it all through Christ. They didn't wash themselves. Jesus washed them. They didn't sanctify themselves. Jesus sanctified them. They didn't justify themselves. Jesus justified them. It is all what he has done for them. And the same is true for us. If you are a believer in this room this morning, let me just say it is not because of anything you've done. I don't care if it's, man, I started coming to redemption or I started reading my Bible or I started hanging out with better people. None of that is what made you a Christian. What made you a Christian is what God has done for you through Jesus. He washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. It is all his work and he gets all the honor. So I want you to hang on to this. Remember this phrase or remember this statement is that our lives has, has been changed by God and every, everything Christ has done and not by ourselves in anything that we have done. Don't pat yourself on the back and be like, I'm a Christian because I did this and that and that. No, it's because of what God has done and everything Christ has done for you. He gets all the credit. And this reminds me, this reminds me of our vision statement. So if you've seen our vision statement, like coming up on the back of the building, if you've walked up the back lot, that giant phrase on the, wall, on the outside of our building, that's our vision statement. And our vision statement is this, is we, want, we are watching Jesus write countless stories of redemption for messy people like us. Now, there's an important aspect in that vision statement, and it's this, is notice who is writing the stories. It's not Redemption Chapel. It's not our pastors. It's not, it's not your community group. It's not your men's, women's Bible study table. What writes your story of redemption is Jesus is he is the author. He is the one that is writing your story. And because he is writing it, and he does all the work, all the glory, all the credit goes to him. You cannot take any credit for changing your life. It is all because of the story of redemption Jesus is and has written in your life. 
So that's a phrase you see. Another statement you see around our church, and you probably hear us say this all the time, is this, relationship, not religion. It's relationship, not religion. Because here's the thing, religion will improve your life. Religion can improve your life. But, but relationship with Jesus will change your life. If you really want to experience change, if you really want to move from living a lifestyle of sin and you want to experience being washed and sanctified and justified, you don't need religion. You need a relationship with Jesus, right? Religion is us doing a bunch of good works to try to make ourselves right with God, and it doesn't work that way. What a relationship with God is, it's him doing all the work before we even started to try to do anything, and he says, here, here it is. I give you this, and I want to give you a relationship with me. It's relationship, not religion. Now, here's the thing. Some people like to argue when we go that way, they say, well, uh, if it's all about Jesus, if it's all about what he has done, and it's all about forgiveness and grace, like, does that just let us off the hook to do whatever we want? Does that just allow us then to just go live a lifestyle of sin? Because, oh, we're forgiven, right? Like, it's kind of like that guy in the illustration on the basketball court. Since we prayed a prayer, since we have Jesus in our lives, can we then just go live however we want to live? And Paul's going to argue that's not really how we apply all this. That's not how we respond to the gospel. So look at this in verse 12. He goes on and says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now it's likely this phrase all things are lawful for me. This was a phrase that was very popular by those uh, Corinthian Christians that Paul's writing to. And they would probably use this phrase to kind of excuse sinful behavior in their lives. So they would think, well, all things are lawful. Like I have freedom in Christ. I can do what I want to do. There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's mercy. So it doesn't really matter if I do that thing that I know I shouldn't. And they would excuse sinful behavior. And now Paul would say, hey, that's not how you use your Christian freedom. That's not how you respond to being changed by the gospel. And we can easily point the finger at them and say, and you're going to hear some stuff in the sermon next week about how they apply this. And you can point the finger and say, well, that's dumb. Come on, guys. But we do it too. That we do not always take our holiness. We do not always take our spiritual growth seriously. And we sometimes as Christians think, okay, I'm at freedom in Christ And we abuse it by not thoughtfully and wisely living our lives in a way that helps us grow. Now, when Paul says that phrase, all things are lawful for me, and he repeats that phrase, he doesn't actually correct it. He doesn't say, hey, that's wrong, don't say that. Because what Paul knows, in a sense, is that is a statement that a Christian can make. So a Christian, and the Corinthian Christians could, and we could too, we could say all things are lawful for me, and that would be fine. That would be true. That would be accurate. However, it all depends on what you mean when you say all things. It all hinges upon that. So here's, let me explain what I mean. If you are referring to to things that God has not necessarily spoken directly to, and he has given us freedom as Christians to make our own choices, to form our own personal convictions, that's a key word, personal convictions, if we're dealing with one of those areas, we can say all things are lawful because God has given us freedom to make our own decisions and even to disagree with other Christians, right? We would call these sometimes non-essential matters of conscience, right? Let me give you some examples of what that could be. That could be alcohol. So we know the Bible's very clear. Drunkenness is a sin. If you get drunk, that is a sin. But the Bible doesn't necessarily speak out against consuming alcohol in moderation, 
And so Christians throughout time have different opinions on should you drink alcohol, should you not? And that's an area the Bible doesn't give a hard and fast uh, detail or direction on. And so Christians can disagree. We have different personal conviction. That's a freedom in Christ type of thing. Maybe it's forms of entertainment, things that some Christians watch, some Christians may not watch, or things you listen to or don't listen to. We can disagree on that. Maybe uh, it's things like uh, social media. So some Christians would say, nope, I don't want to do social media. Some say they do. And that's an area we can disagree. We can have different opinions on. Maybe it's things like cussing, tattoos, smoking, forms of school, like homeschool, Christian school, public school. Does the Bible say? No, it doesn't. So you have to form your own convictions. And then in honor of the last two years, let's just throw our favorites out. Politics, mask, and vaccines, all right? Last I checked, the Bible doesn't say anything about those, but we can disagree as Christians. We can have different convictions on those things. And so Paul says, hey, if you are referring to those things, yes, all things are lawful. You have freedom in Christ to make your own decision. However, if you are referring to sin, if you're referring to something the Bible is clear on, all bets are off. There is no room for personal convictions when the Bible clearly speaks on a topic. In that case, we submit and we obey, and we don't form any personal convictions. But, but what if we are? Like, what if we are dealing with that area or those areas where we can have freedom, where we can have different convictions? What the heck do we do with that? And that's what Paul helps us with in this verse. He actually gives us a really nice filter, a really nice filter that when you're facing one of those areas that's kind of a gray area and you're like, I don't know what I should do as a believer, he gives you a really nice filter to put it through to help you see it. And it's in the form of two questions. The first is this, is it helpful? Is it helpful? Is that thing helpful to my spiritual growth? Is it going to help me grow closer to Jesus? Is it going to help me represent Jesus? Is it good for my well-being, right? Is this going to help me be a good steward of my body or the things that God has given me? And it also extends to other people. So is this helpful for my brother and sister in Christ and their spiritual growth? Is it helpful for their well-being? So we have to ask ourselves, even within Christian freedom, is it helpful? The second question Paul says we can ask or the filter we can use is, will it enslave me? Will it enslave me? He uses the word dominate. And that basically means being enslaved by something. And Paul says, hey, even something within your Christian freedom, if it leads to slavery, if it leads to you being dominated by it, you should be careful going and, and, uh, and, and using your Christian freedom for that thing. So maybe something for you, you got to think about, maybe it's some past sin. Maybe there's something you struggled with before you came to Christ. And, and now that you are a believer, you have freedom to maybe do that thing. But because of your past, you say, eh, I'm going to be careful. That's, that's how you use your Christian freedom. Maybe it's your personality and temperament. We're all wired differently. We all are pulled towards different things. So maybe there's things that you refrain from that I don't or things that the, the, the vice is true, the vice versa is true as well. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's family history. There's things in our past and our families that maybe would cause us to say, eh, I know I have freedom in Christ to do that, but I'm not gonna do that because I know of my family history. But here's the bottom line. is the Bible tells us over and over, do not be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that we are slaves to Christ as believers. And so if anything else controls you, or if you are enslaved to anything other than Jesus, even if it's within your Christian freedom, Paul says you might want to refrain from that. And so here's what I want you to do with that. 
is maybe this week, maybe this month, maybe the next season of life, however, whatever time period you want to say, you're going to be faced with some area that the Bible isn't very clear on. You're going to be faced with maybe decision, maybe an action. And you're going to say, what does the Bible say? And the Bible's not going to give you a hard yes or no. It's going to be an area of Christian freedom that you can form a conviction and have a different opinion on than others. And when you are faced with that, I want you to ask yourself, is it helpful and is it, or is it enslaving? Is this going to help me grow? Is it going to help me walk with Jesus? And is this going to enslave me? Is this going to turn into maybe an addiction or something that dominates me? And, and here's my caution. I want to give you a caution because this is so important. When you ask yourself those questions, you may, and you probably will, have different answers than other Christians. And you may land in a different place than other believers do. And that's okay. We are dealing with Christian freedom. And what I don't want you to do is become arrogant. I don't want you to become uh, prideful and judgmental that just because you land this way when it comes to an area of Christian freedom, your brothers that land over here and sisters that land over here, you start to judge them. That's legalism, and that's never okay. What you need to do is say, you know, that's my personal conviction. It's Christian freedom. This is where I land. I love you. I bless you. If you land somewhere else, go for it because this is an area we can disagree. We need grace we need love. We don't want to go legalism. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot just in a few verses. And so what I want to do as we wrap up is I want to give you a couple of takeaways that kind of wraps all this together. And the first one is this. Jesus, not ourselves, changes our lives or changed our lives. Here's the, if there's anything you remember is this, is that, man, the change that you have experienced because of Jesus, don't take credit for that. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't act like you did anything. The change that God has brought into your life is 100% because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross and the work that he has done for you. And he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. We don't get anything with that. So, so remember that. The secondly, and this is what leads us to the second one, is, is we should be in awe of Jesus. Be in awe of Jesus. Like when you think about where you've came from, when you think about the lifestyle of sin that you were in, and then think about how Jesus rescued you and how he saved you and redeemed you, he washed you, he sanctified you, he justified you, and you think about where you're at now and you think about the change he has brought, I hope that floors you. I hope that just knocks you to your knees and you say, oh my gosh, Jesus, thank you. And I hope you're in awe of everything he has done and is doing in your life. It is all because of him, and that should lead us to worship and being in awe of Jesus and obeying him with our lives. But then lastly this, don't abuse your Christian freedom. Don't abuse our freedom in Jesus. Please don't. You have great freedom in Christ. Because of the change, because of the work he's done, you have great freedom. But please, don't love your freedom more than your spiritual health. Don't love your freedom more than your spiritual growth. Be wise, be thoughtful. But, but here's the thing, as you do, don't be judgmental about it. Don't abuse it. Don't abuse it by, by, by going a, into sin or going into things that aren't helpful, but don't abuse it also by, by putting others to the standard of your personal convictions. Don't abuse it, all right? So with that in mind, let me pray and let's ask God to help us do those things. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us your word so we can know you and love you. And we thank you this morning that you've shown us very plainly, God, that, that we cannot live a lifestyle of sin and claim to have inheritance in the kingdom of God and think that we're okay. And so I pray for anyone in this room that maybe they, they've maybe had an experience. Maybe they prayed a prayer, but man, they aren't living for you. There's no, uh, there's no life of righteousness. It's just this lifestyle of sin. 
man, I pray you would convict them. I pray they would come to you and experience a life-changing relationship. And God, for those of us who we've experienced that relationship, I pray you would every single day floor us with the gospel. Help us to be in awe of Jesus and what he's done. God, help us to never lose sight and never forget the amazing redemption story he is and, and has written in our lives. And Father, help us in our freedom that we have in you to not abuse it, but to be wise and thoughtful, to be people who think about how we live because we want to grow. We want to be people that love you and follow you with our lives. So God, help us with that. In Christ's name, amen.